1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So a little backstory preface to the message is that um, I was away on vacation and uh, Michael Ochoa, who's one of our elders, he was actually supposed to preach this Sunday and I had received message um, on the way back that he wasn't feeling so well and we decided that uh, I would speak. And so I was prepping later on in, during midweek and I was thinking about baptism and I was thinking, what would be a good passage to preach from? and just exploring different passages, and I said, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Little did I remember until last night that Eddie Pack, who just read God's word, preached on this same passage only a few months ago. <laughs> and it, it just didn't dawn on me. It says something about remembering sermons, right? Even for me. I know you, maybe you might not remember messages so well. Well, um, I contacted him this morning. I said, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm preaching on the same text that you preached on. And he was gracious, of course. But if, if some of this sounds familiar to you, please uh, don't hold it against Eddie nor me. <laughs> so that's my little preface. But with that, there's always something to learn, regardless of how many times you hear this passage preached. And I'm going to begin with a little story. I was... Uh, hiking, as some of you know, I enjoy hiking. So I was hiking with a group of people, actually some from the church. We were um, in the Marin Headlands, and we were making our way down towards the beach area. And as we were heading closer and closer, I smelled this really strong stench. Oh, it, it smelled like something had died. Actually, I, I, I haven't smelled too many times of other than dead fish, right? Of something that has died. But it was very, very strong. And coming from pretty significantly far away. By the time we made it to the beach, we came to realize what that smell was. It was a beached whale. And the carcass of that whale, it was about 50% rotted away. And so what was left was still a lot of blubber, a lot of guts, and this terrible smell. You look at that whale and you think, wow, that, that's, a, that's pretty disgusting. And it just is so striking because it's so big and so rotten. But as I stared at it and I think about it and I thought about this message in particular, I just thought, imagine if suddenly that whale sprung to life and jumped back into the ocean. What would happen to my world at that point? Well, first I would think science has been completely upended. Uh, this is such a great miracle that it's inexplicable, unfathomable, and I would be struck with awe. It would also perhaps make me question reality. Maybe the way that I think about the world, about my life. Something that dramatic, and I know, can't imagine it, but if you would have seen the, the size of that carcass, and then imagine it coming to life and just jumping into the water, you, you begin to realize that 
this concept of resurrection that we Christians talk about so often, we don't perhaps realize how significant it is until we experience it to some extent. And maybe it's because we don't really experience death so often. But when you see something truly rotten dead, then you begin to understand how miraculous a resurrection truly is. To be a Christian is to believe that the resurrection of Christ is a historical reality. That someone died and then three days later when their flesh is already going through the decomposition process, somehow is able to come back to life. That's supposed to upend our sense of reality, our way of thinking about the world. It must, it should. And it's supposed to transform us. It's a far greater miracle than even a rotting whale springing to life and tossing itself into the ocean. On this day, as we prepare for baptism, which is meant to be this symbol and sign of that reality, of someone, meaning Jesus Christ, being raised from the grave, coming to life. And then we who also were once dead, as Paul says in in Ephesians 1, that we were dead in our trespasses, but made alive together in Christ, baptism is supposed to represent that. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And I wanted to really explore this together by examining just three quick points. First is, what does it mean to be born again? Because that's what Eddie read um, from Peter. Second is, what does it mean to be born again to a living hope? And then third, what does it mean to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ? So those three very laid out points that Peter makes, I think, pretty clearly. We're going to look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I can't read First Peter without thinking about Peter. I'm so thankful for the record that we have from the gospel writers of this extraordinary apostle who was so flawed in so many different ways. He just jumps off the pages at you. When you read about Peter, you think, Maybe you think, wow, this guy's really brash. Or maybe you say, I can understand him. Or maybe you look at his failures, his tragic failures. He is truly the tragic hero of a Shakespearean play. And you imagine someone like him and you think, how sad. It's very visceral to think about Peter. Well, that man is writing these words. And he begins with, a very classic formula of blessing within the Hebrew world, the Shema, blessed be the Lord. And it's something that every Jew knew. You praise God. Why do you praise God? Because he is the God of the universe. He created all things. But Peter takes it a step further. He blesses God the Father, but it's very Trinitarian. It's and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what Peter experienced with Jesus was not just that Jesus was some miracle worker or a man. He did the same things that God himself did. Therefore, he is God. Only God can control the seas. Only God can heal the sick, multiply a few loaves and fishes to feed thousands. And only God can 
take someone who is dead and bring him back to life. So for Peter, when he thinks of the glorious God of the Jews, of the world, and then he equates him to Jesus, he does so to say, this is something extraordinary and it's going to impact our lives. Another thing to know about Peter is that Peter's writing in a very specific historical context. Under Emperor Nero, Peter basically did much of his ministry to the church and wrote this letter under Nero. And so Nero, perhaps some of you know, was one of the greatest persecutors of the Christian church. Maybe you might say alongside with a few despots, really he was the prototypical despot, someone who truly made the church suffer. And this is leading up to Nero's great persecution of Christians. But certainly at this point, persecution was on its way. There was at least economic hardship. There was possibly imprisonments and possibly physical pain and torturing and suffering. The church was under duress. And so those who were listening to Peter's letter, they would have certainly been in fear for many different reasons, anxious, concerned. To be a Christian was to place yourself into danger. Much more danger than coming to a church during a pandemic. Much more. Your life was at stake if you came and met with other Christians. So if we're meeting together and it is potentially possible that the authorities would come in, break down the doors, and literally drag all of us into prison. Let me tell you, if I was preaching a sermon, I'm a pastor, what would you like for me to preach about? Financial wealth and security, um, making sure you raise your kids well so that they can get into a certain college, morality and ethics. These are important things. They have value. But let's not fool ourselves to think that that's ultimate. When your life is at stake, when everything matters to you and you literally can lose your life or your father or your mother or your child could be dragged off, and you would never see them again, your faith will not be sustained because of how to be a good dad. What matters is, are you born again? Because being born again is a paradigm shift. It's a transition of, of your life. It's transformational. It, it helps you to see the world vastly differently. In chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Peter, Peter calls the church elect exiles, meaning elect your chosen. God has called you. He's embraced you. He's saved you. But you're rejected. You're a people who don't fit into the world. And you know that because of the persecution that you're facing, the suffering that you're facing. In many parts of the world, what we're going to do coming soon is incredibly dangerous. Because if you are baptized, for example, in a Muslim culture in the Middle East, sometimes the people who hear about it and want to kill that person is your mom and dad, brother and sister, an uncle. And this act of baptism, see, Middle Eastern Christians know that baptism is that place that there's no turning back. 
Because once you're baptized, everyone knows you're a Christian. And when everyone knows you're a Christian, in a society, in a world that hates Christ and the gospel, and therefore a parent, a cousin, an uncle, will do everything they can to kill you, well, then baptism means a lot. Now, what causes then someone to be baptized knowing that that's the consequence of baptism? It's not going to be because they really love children's ministry or they want to be a part of a great youth program. <laughs> that's not what causes someone to be baptized. No, it's because we sang about it. I believe in God the Father. I believe it. I, it's, it's my life. Doctrine, it might sound so ethereal and you know, just meant for the academic, but doctrine matters so much when your suffering is at its peak or when the dangers are at its highest. There have been times where I've had the privilege and honor to be at the bedside of people who are taking their last breaths. They are not thinking about retirement. They're not thinking about how much money they're leaving behind. You know what matters most? I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. Doctrine. What matters is I'm born again. <laughs> That's it. And so you can understand why Peter is trying to dig this into the church because you will not know how to live unless you truly know what you believe. Until you get to that place where you really believe this, then all the living is always going to be ultimately meaningless. So Paul and Peter is just hammering down this point. Be born again. And born again is ex exactly what it sounds like. Death to life. You were dead, now you're alive. For Peter, born again has these real life implications. So it's not impractical. It's very practical to be born again. Because being born again leads to, verse 3, a living hope. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, think about how powerful those words for Peter are. Because he was a man who was hopeless. I mean, he, he really had no hope. When he saw his master, his teacher, his rabbi go to that cross after the denials and suffer this miserable suffering, he didn't want to be perhaps anywhere near it because all seemed lost. So when Peter is saying living hope, wow, these are significant words for him because he didn't have living hope for a while. And this was not some sort of wishful, oh, I hope something good happens, but I'm not sure. For Peter, he understood, no, this is real, because he knew what it felt like to actually lose everything, where there was despair. And once you place your hope on something that you know certainly will never fade, then nothing will tear you down. We so often perhaps place our hope 
and I hope I get this job after you have this interview and you feel like it was a good interview and you don't know, am I going to get this job or not? Or I hope I meet someone who's going to be the love of my life. Or you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor. I hope there is healing. Oftentimes when we place such hopes in any circumstance, whether it's good or bad, if you hope in something turn, that turns out well for you, get ready to be disappointed. Even if it turns out well, the next time you're going to hear something bad. Here's, that's the reality of placing your hope in anything in this world is that eventually you will be let down. There are many Christians, people, who place their hope in a pastor. What happens when you place your hope in a pastor, a church leader? You will be let down. There are many pastors who have fallen, who have fallen to, to um, some sort of morality issue or maybe it's just something has happened. And this is just news after news. You can hear that. And if you're the person who listens to that and say, says, why should I believe in Jesus? Why should, look at all these people who preached and did all these great things and suddenly they're, they're just miserable. So what hope is there? If you're thinking that way, perhaps you've forgotten that your hope is not in a pastor or a missionary or a, or a PhD famous uh, theologian. Your hope is in Christ. Your hope is in the resurrection. It's in a historical reality. And until we get to that place, if we do not do that, we will always be disappointed, always. Because every person and circumstance in this world is temporary and fleeting. The answer is living hope. Everything else is dead, despairing. Living hope knows the end of the story and is able to persevere through all sorts of circumstances and trials because through every poor diagnosis, through every rejection, every failure, every despairing moment, we know the end of the story. And because we know the end of the story, regardless of the ebbs and flows of life, we still press forward with a living hope. We still trust. It, we're, our hopes are never dashed ultimately because it's not in a person and it's not in a, a particular circumstance. It's in Christ and Christ alone. Tim Keller tells the story of Auschwitz survivor and psychologist Viktor Frankl. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about different prisoners that Viktor Frankl had met in Auschwitz. Some of those prisoners had quickly lost hope. And once they believed they were going to die, they died. That's just sort of how it went. They walked around without eating. They were lethargic. They were listless. And quickly they would die. There was another group of people, another pris group of prisoners. And th these type of prisoners, they had this hope that they were going to be rescued on a very particular date. He had a number of people come to him and said, I believe that we're going to see rescue. The allies are going to win and we're going to be rescued on March 29th. And guess what would happen? March 29th would come along. And then literally the day after they would die. There was another group of people, a group of people that would go to him and say, how do we get through such horrors? How do we make it? And this is his answer to them. He said, life only has meaning if we have a hope. 
and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. Now the question is really, what is that hope? You can only, life only has meaning if the hope that you have will never be taken away through death. Well, this world, death is a reality. So I really appreciate what Tim Keller says in commenting on what Viktor Frankl uh, notes. He says, if you make as your ultimate hope any finite object, remember that list, health, family, professional achievement, fortune, and position in society, those aren't bad things, but if you make any finite object into your ultimate hope, what is this suffering? What is suffering but the stripping of those things? You will not avoid suffering. If those things are your ultimate hope, you're hoping, and then live in incredible cynicism and disillusionment. That is what we live with if you place your hope in your family, in personal wealth or achievement, in your own health. Do not think that any one of us is beyond experiencing loss of one of those things or all of them. It will happen. Sometimes it happens just ongoing after ongoing. Some people experience that. For some of us, it might happen later on. Right now, everything's great, but later on it comes. Until we realize that our hope does not rest on anything in this world, then we will always be despairing eventually when it comes to hoping in something. Because our world lets us down. Everything in it. I mean, think of what you hope for right now in this world. Does anyone hope that the, the pandemic will go away, COVID is gone? Why is it that we're wearing masks after most of us have been vaccinated and boosted and we were promised it was gonna be over? Did you place your hope in a vaccine? Well, if you did, you know what it feels like to have your hopes dashed. We're supposed to never quarantine again or to not lock down and all these things. And yet, here it comes back. Do not place your hope in a virus going away or in a surgery going well or in uh, health because what happens is cynicism, disillusionment, and you see a lot of that. Instead, hope ultimately in Christ. Now, some of us, we, we are raising children. And as we're raising our kids, we have hopes and dreams for them. And here's the problem with that. I know I experienced this. I have a feeling some of you maybe experienced this a little bit is you have hopes and dreams for your own children. And when they, certain things don't go right, maybe their attitude isn't what you had hoped for. And so what does it lead to? Anger, frustration, disillusionment, maybe cynicism. And we're always struggling with that. That's the flesh. That's the nature of flesh and spirit. But we're, we're struggling with it. And I have, I have children. I have hopes and dreams for them. I have hopes and dreams that it's not hopefully my hopes and dreams, but it's theirs. But then it gets mixed up with perhaps my hopes and dreams as well. And so it all becomes jumbled up. But... In the end, and I was, as I was worshiping here the second time, I just, I just felt, I wish I could just go and take my old family, go and go to a mountain and just go overseas and share the gospel. Forget about everything. 
and let's just worship the Lord fully. It, there, it was just this thought came into my heart. Um, but that's not the answer. It, is it, we should all go and build a commune and just try to live, forget about everything? No, but it is to say, what is, where's my ultimate hope? It cannot be in the prosperity and comfort and care and wealth and health of people around me. To do so, you're going to be disillusioned. At some point, somewhere along this journey, you're going to say, why didn't it work out the way that I had, quote, hoped for? This past week, um, I had received a, a text from a friend of mine, a good friend of mine from seminary. His son, 15 years old, jumped off a building. And he is in his, at first, by God's grace, he's, he's not, um, he's slowly recovering, but it was a 5% chance of him surviving. And then with that coming more, uh, perhaps brain damage and all sorts of things. And God is just, it's amazing, actually, it, within just a few days, how he's progressed amazingly. It's just truly a miracle. You know, I, I listened to that story of my friend as we've been praying for him, and I think, wow, you know, suddenly what college my kids go to doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> you know, suddenly uh, whether I have a lot of money or a little money or whether I own my own home or not or whether I... Uh, what type of car I drive or where I go on vacation. Those things don't matter when your child jumps off a building. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that if you're placing your hope in any penultimate hope, you're going to be disappointed and perhaps tragically disappointed. Our Savior gave his life so that you can rest assured that you have ultimate hope a living hope. And that living hope is rooted on the greatest power ever seen. It's called the resurrection. Look at verse three. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter writes these words because if anyone understood living hope, it is Peter because he had dead hope. Peter, he, who was he? He was the one who said, if everyone leaves you, all these other disciples, Jesus, even if they all abandon you, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to fight for you. And yet before a little girl, he denies Jesus three times. This same brash, arrogant, boasting man. And so when he writes this, Look at the precious words, according to his great mercy. When Peter's writing this, he knew that mercy so well. He remembered who he was. I was that guy. And he's writing to the church and he's saying, church, I know you might be struggling right now, but remember this, I was that guy who did not deserve a single ounce of mercy, and yet you showed me mercy. And because of that, verse 8, Peter writes, I have inexpressible joy. He uses the same idea as Psalm 4-7 where David says, you have put more joy in my heart 
than they have when their grain and wine abound. There's an inexpressible joy in that mercy. <laughs> Peter wept over the, his denials. He was a broken man, ashamed, guilty. He boasted. He was arrogant. He was brash. And so when it all seemed over and there was no hope, it was dead hope. What happened? Three days later, we hear, according to Luke 24, 12, listen to how um, Luke describes it. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The dead had come to life. Dead hope, living hope. What is it based on? A, a historic act. The physical bodily resurrection of Christ. My friends, if you are born again, you now see Jesus anew. He is alive. He was dead, now he's alive. But it's not just Jesus. All throughout Paul's letters, Peter here, it's we have been raised with him. So the basis of our faith is never on something that ebbs and flows through the times. It doesn't matter whether we are healthy or going through chronic pain, whether we are, have been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, whether perhaps even the most tragic of all things, God is faithful because I know it to be true. The resurrection shows me. It's a historical reality that points me to the eternal future. That has to change the way that I live. For those who are being baptized today, your act, the reason why it's such a significant act is that it is a public profession of this faith in a historic reality that is going to transform the way you view the world. And I will say this, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ and you say, I am born again, but you've never been baptized, and you're saying, but I'm so scared, I don't, I'm afraid it's a little awkward, and I have to give my testimony publicly. Man, I look at Peter, who we have his whole life before us in a book, a lot of embarrassing detail. But for Peter, this inexpressible joy was so effusive, and it was based on this historical reality that he was saying, I'm, I can give everything. And so he was beaten, he was imprisoned, but he said, he, as Acts 4 reminds us, he rejoices for being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Eventually he would lose his life for Jesus' sake. This same man who is so ashamed, so guilt-ridden, who denied Christ before a, a little girl, if you are born again and you are saved and you're not baptized, then I question, are you born again? If you're born again, you must be baptized. And it's not because the baptism saves you, but it's the outward expression of saying, I am saved. I am born again. I see it anew. I believe. I believe. And you're singing these words and say, I believe. He rose again. Then baptism says, and I want to show the world that I am. And so for those of you who are youth and you're saying, yeah, I'm saved, but you're like, 
I don't want to go in. That seems a little awkward. Then, my friend, you might not be saved, actually. But if you are saved, then you should be running up the next time we say baptism and say, please, I want to be baptized. If you're an adult and you've never been baptized, you must be baptized. Not because it saves you, but because you are saved. And so therefore, baptism is the reality. It's an expression of that reality. It shows us that Jesus gave his life for us. And that's why we're so excited for today.